want to say hi to everyone joining us in the room this morning and those of you who are joining us online. It's good to be with you today. Uh, we're in the middle of this series where we're reflecting on the greatest words that have ever been written on the subject of love. We're becoming students of First Corinthians in chapter 13. I've been reading that passage every day for the past few weeks. Maybe you're doing so as well. I hope so. We're, we're trying to, one of the many things we're trying to do is, but one of the things we're trying to do is rescue this passage from kind of like the quagmire of romantic captivity, captivity to, to weddings and flowers and and frilly dresses that you're never going to wear again, and overly long toasts, and and garter throwing, and that whole thing. Because love is meant to be the criteria of everything that we do. And 1 Corinthians 13 was not intended for a target audience, mainly of wedding goers. Spiritual maturity is to be measured by love, period. And Paul doesn't write this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, as a Valentine's card to Corinth. He actually writes it because they were terrible at love. We talked about this last week. Uh, The basic message he's sending them uh, is the idea that everything that you do is is anti-love. So... My greatest suggestion to you this is simply this, do the opposite. I mean, what it is you're inclined to do, do the opposite. We've been learning that love requires the acquisition of character, of cultivating something different inside of us. Because sometimes we think, you know, God, I'd be more loving if you sent more lovable people into my life. But Paul doesn't say, surround yourself by more lovable people. Instead, the focus of his message seems to be if you commit yourself to allowing God to grow something in you, to cultivating a different kind of character, then the audience, the recipients, the beneficiaries of love will include those who are inside your circle, those who you're already feeling great solidarity with, and those who are outside your circle. So those of you who were here last week, remember, those were the two big takeaways from the message. Do the opposite and expand your circle. Love is patient. Love is kind. We looked at those words a few weeks ago. Love is beyond envy. To love means to have this inner orientation where through through the power of God at work within us, this is not just our own human horsepower, but through the power of God, I will work for, pray for, the good of another person. When we say God bless you, really that's what we mean. We desire God's very best for you. And here's the text we're going to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love is not irritable. It's kind of the scripture reading for today. You want to read it with me? Let's say that. Love is not irritable. Paul goes on, says it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. But we're actually going to zero in on that one expression. Love is not irritable. That's actually... That's kind of the whole message. You know, sometimes you go to church and you go home and later in the day, somebody might ask you, hey, how was church? What was it about? And you scratch your head and say, actually, you know, I don't, I don't really know what it's about. 
That's really irritating, by the way. <laughs> this is one of those messages where I promise you at the end you'll know what it's about. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you at the very beginning. Here it is. Love is not irritable. And why is that needed? Be- because life is filled with irritation. An irritant. Anything that causes frustration in life. A boss who makes unreasonable requests or, or getting poor service at a restaurant. A relative who's deliberately rude to you. A family member. A, co- a coworker who makes you look bad in public. You know, it could be anything. You're running late. You're stuck in traffic. Somebody deliberately, arrogantly cuts you off. And you're tempted because you're irritable uh, to offer them some sort of non-faith-based gesture, but then you think twice about it and, and up it comes. The number one irritant in life, of course, is people. Life would be easier if it weren't for all the people in it, but how dull it would be. We like to say here around the church, you've heard it already this morning, that everybody is welcome, nobody's perfect, anything is possible. That first part, everything is welcome, that's true. It's also true that everybody is irritating, not all the time, but from time to time. Paul says, love is not irritable. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say love never gets angry. Anger, to be clear, is an emotion. Anger is the emotion we experience when our will gets frustrated. The purpose of anger, it gives us the energy necessary to deal with whatever it is that has frustrated us. Anger is an emotion. Irritability is not an emotion. It's a mood. What's the difference? Moods are long-lasting. A mood is like a predisposition, a tendency towards a certain package of emotions. Generally speaking, we talk about two different kinds of moods. People are in a Good mood, or they are in a bad mood. What kind of mood is irritability? Bad mood. Moods, or moodiness, has a lot to do with our spiritual condition. And sometimes I, I fear that we, we make spiritual maturity sound like it's just kind of sin management. Like if we could stomp out a few of these nasty behaviors in our life, we're doing well. No, Spirituality, maturity in Christ is about learning to, to, to reorient our minds, our character, our moods. Maybe think of it this way. If I really believe, if you really believe, the way we believe in gravity, we just take it for granted. It would never occur to us that gravity isn't a thing. If you really believe that way, that there is a good, good God, just like you sang, who created everything, and that he's working together in everything for good. If you really believe that God is exactly the person that Jesus described him to be, joyful and generous, a loving father, welcoming his children home, if you really believe that you are his precious beloved, I love that language too, the disciples whom Jesus loved, if that's who we are, beloved child, that your sins have been forever, forever forgiven because of the cross. If you really believe as we like to say that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that his eye is on the sparrow, and so he's always watching me, that the goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, that because of the empty tune, 
tomb that death has lost its sting, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. If we really believe that, if that's the gravity in our lives, what kind of mood will we be in? Can you imagine what that would do for us? Love and joy and peace. Those aren't meant to be commands. That's meant to be the predisposition for our life. If I'm mostly in an irritable mood, it's probably because my mind is circling around a whole bunch of other thoughts all the time. By the way, by the way, who's in charge of your mind? You are. You are. Who runs the programming for your thoughts? Who's responsible for what you will fill your head with and what thoughts will circulate in between this great orb? That's you. In fact, the most important, the most vital freedom that you have in your life, the one that nobody can ever take from you, no matter what the circumstances, is the ability to decide how you will focus your thoughts. An irritable person is somebody who is predisposed to anger. Their body, their mind are poised for it. It's like they're always in a state of recoil and they're ready to strike. The neural circuitry of their brain itself has been rewired for anger. And it happens. It happens if we constantly dwell on those irritation-producing thoughts without even noticing it. Where does an irritable person need to be to get angry? Could be anywhere. At home, at work, at school, in the car, watching the news. Ever meet somebody who just shakes their fist at the news? As if the news were watching back at them? We live, this is sometimes called the age of outrage. In a restaurant, in a bar, at the store. Did I say bar? No, not in the bar. Yeah. In the parking lot. People even get mad at church. Makes me irritable when they do that. Events that, that a joyful person would simply be able to accept with patience. An irritable person gets set off. You're in line at Tim Hortons or Starbucks, if that's your caffeine of choice. And the, the person in front of you at the counter is taking a long time in conversation with the barista. And they're laughing and they're teasing and they're making small, small talk. And if I'm in hurry and if I'm an irritable person, I'm thinking, hey, what is the matter with this person? You need to just place your order and get out of the way. There ought to be like a shot clock for the lineup at Tim Hortons. You get 15 seconds to place your order and then the next person. But if I've wrestled a little bit with my own self-centeredness, and I'm imagining that it's Jesus and me, we're in line together. Maybe I'm thinking, you know what? That's a great thing. That here you have a customer treating this poor minimum wage teenage employee with warmth and dignity, like they're actually a human being. And it inspires me. And maybe I'm going to do that too when it's my turn. Maybe I'll do something and try and get a smile on their face. Same set of circumstances in both cases. What's the difference? Love is not irritable. Again, Paul doesn't write here, you need to try really, really hard not to be irritable. You don't become an unirritable, non-irritable person by trying hard not to be irritable. 
like everything that we've been talking about, the aim is to be so pervaded by and living out of the awareness and immersion in the presence, the power, and the love of God that there's just no room for the other stuff to creep in. We talked about gardening last week, right? If you have a lush, beautiful garden, lawn, let's imagine a lawn, then there's just no room for the weeds to press their way forward. The secret to a great garden is having really healthy grass, not constantly putting down herbicide and plucking weeds. Same thing with character. The more we cultivate the great stuff, the less room there is for the weedy stuff. Because, I mean, to be honest, irritability, it's kind of like a gateway drug. It feels like on the sin list, well, it's on there, but it's not really far down there. But it's the gateway to the stuff that is. And it leads to all kinds of other things. And we say they're not important, sarcasm or resentment. But over time, we know that it's a gateway to things like ruined marriages and damaged children. And it leads to hostility and even violence. Now, not all irritable people are violent. But I guarantee you, all violent people are irritable. It starts there. But love is not that way. Love is not irritable. Hey, by the way, what's the message about? Irritability. Irritability. Love is not? Hey, that's great, Rochelle. They remembered. What is it that produces an irritable character? Well, this is really connected to the next observation Paul makes about love. So... 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. What does that mean, no record of wrongs? Well, listen, we're all record keepers. We all have memories, and we all store up thoughts, and we hold on to them, and we bring them back into our awareness on a regular basis. Irritable keep people keep a record of all the times that they've been wronged in life. They do it in their minds. They do it by recalling all the situations, rehearsing them, of where people have been mean to them, bad to them, unjust to them. And they play it back like they're watching, I don't know, a sitcom constantly being replayed. And I feel that surge of emotion as I replay all those negative events, that same self-righteous emotion that I felt when I was unjustly hurt, that that sense of moral superiority over the person who hurt me. I indulge in self-pity. And then I gather a whole bunch of people around me so I can tell them the story again and again of all the times that I've been wronged, and they can reinforce for me that sense of victimhood and encourage moral outrage. I think about it at night, and it keeps me awake, which is good, so I have more time to think about all this stuff. I mean, to be honest, one of my spiritual gifts is probably pouting. First thing that happened to me in the world is some doctor grabbed me by the feet and smacked me on the butt, and I, for no good reason, held it against him all these years. He just died a few years ago. Yeah. I could remember, if I could remember Bible verses as well as I could remember the times that I have been wronged, I'd probably have the whole Bible memorized by now. Of course, after a while, we get a kind of playlist that goes on autoplay like Spotify. And this stuff just keeps going over and over and over in our minds. And after a while, you don't even have to think about it anymore. Maybe you wonder, why would anybody do this? Well, there's a a fantastic 
writer. I recommend him highly. Uh, he just died this month, so, so you might see his name a little bit in print. His name is Frederick Beekner. He had a gift with the pen. This is how he put it. Beekner says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor till the last toothsome morsel both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down on is yourself. And the skeleton at the feast is you. Of course, sin is always that way. It's forbidden by God, not because he's testing us just on obedience, like it's a good thing, but I'm saying no to it just to see if you really are following. No, it's forbidden because sin has a way of corroding and destroying human life. It's forbidden because it's for our betterment. Now, here's what's critical. Love keeps records. It's just that It doesn't record wrongs. It keeps other records. We're all record keepers. God God made us this way. He gave us this amazing gift of memory. It's part of what makes us us. It gives us our identity. Love remembers the gifts to be grateful for, the qualities in other people that I admire. It, It remembers the moments of joy in life that we get to savor. The suffering that I might actually be able to help with and do something about. The injustice that I can help relieve. Love remembers that there are reasons for hope. It keeps a record of rights. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing to another church in Philippi, he said it like this. He said it beautifully. Philippians 4.8. If you have a highlight function or an underlying function in your device, make sure that you highlight this. Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, keep a record of these things. Paul uses the same expression. Think about these things. Keep good records. It's fascinating. The Bible points us in this direction all the time. Whatever is good and right and noble and true and admirable. Every day in creation, you see it all around you. Store that stuff up. The things that you see in other people, music and stories and art and things of beauty, store those up. Dwell on those things. The greatest freedom in your life is the freedom to decide where your mind is going to dwell. In irritable people, their minds dwell on all the wrong stuff. God has uh, God has made us in such a way that we are natural record keepers. And what happens as a result is every time a new thought forms, we know this from neuroscience, the, the, the synapses in your brain actually get wired a little bit. And it makes it easier for you to think that thought more quickly next time. That's why, for example, 
we use uh, repetition as a way of drilling recall. Every time you repeat something, it gets easier to recall next time. So if you are keeping a record of bitter things, what comes back most easily? Bitter things. But love thinks excellent thoughts. It's why loving actions and loving words flow so much more automatically and easily from loving people. It reflects what's going on in the inside, their thought life. Love keeps excellent records. And then it leads to activity, something tangible on the outside. To whom might I show kindness? That's love's question. And you can do this. You can, you can start doing this now. We look for little takeaways every week. This is the secret of living out the power of God in our lives. Love keeps a record of rights. Find time to do that this week. When you see something that, that brings a smile to your face, imprint it. Rehearse that in your mind. Admiration, beauty, service, virtue, courage in the face of injustice. Or just simple things. Laughing babies. Lingering sunsets, the aging faces of saints who have followed God for a long time. Imprint on those things. And then love says, is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? Love is not irritable. Love is the opposite. I spent much of Friday, uh, Thursday night, to, in the city with my kids, taking them to a, well, a big event going on in the city in if you're a geek, you know all about what big event is going on in the city right now. But I lingered outside the Metro Convention Center more than inside because too many people. Um, but when I was outside and I was walking up and down Spadina, I came across a troubling scene where a group of people were harassing a homeless man. And uh, uh, I came up to him afterwards. I was heading down to Subway to get some lunch and I just said, I know you're asking for some food, and they were giving you a hard time. Would you like to join me for lunch? Um, not an altruistic thing, and not something I do very often. Um, but Al, big Al, and big guy, got up and picked up his 75-liter backpack with everything that he owned, and we went down to Subway for lunch. Uh, he, he had a smile and a laugh, that, and he wasn't quiet about it, um, that would fill a room. Uh, now, his language was pretty seedy. And I don't think I went out of my way to, to, to lead him through the sort of the four spiritual laws, God, use a chasm. Like, it, it wasn't meant to be that, not, not in that moment. I just got to have a sub with Al. And uh, Al has probably forgotten about it, you know, <laughs> within, within minutes. But it made my day. Uh, uh, probably didn't make his, but it made my day. And so Al and I are meeting up this afternoon at his favorite sub place, at Belly Busters. Never heard of it, but evidently it's down Spadina and College. And uh, uh, I don't know that he's looking. I'm just looking forward to uh, another great memory with Big Al at Belly Busters. I'll let you know if I survive it or if uh, I have to get my stomach pumped afterwards. But... Uh, Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that experience in, in just a minute. I want to give you one little case study in the Bible, one little practical reflection, and then we'll, we'll wrap it for today. There is a great story about the, um, the effects of irritability, not just on a life, but on a family and indeed on a nation. 
And it's the story of ancient Israel. It comes at a point in the life of Israel when they were celebrating this great victory against their enemies. And everybody was gathered together and they were singing these songs. They were singing about how King Saul had slain thousands of the enemy. And everybody loved that song. And then the second verse was that David had slain tens of thousands. And everybody loved that song except King Saul. That that verse troubled him greatly, displeased him. And because what we know of Saul, at least during his days on the throne, seemed to be an irritable person, he was in a foul mood. You could easily translate the passage where we read about it as saying he heard the song and he was irritable. And he's thinking thoughts instead of, thank you God for this great victory, he's thinking, I think they love David more than me. Nobody wants me for a king. They want him, that young upstart. Probably he's trying to get my crown through this, and I have to keep my crown at all costs. I'm not sharing it. And that means the world would be better if there were no David in it. And he brooded over these things, envy and resentment and fear and pride. And he's just replaying that script again and again in his mind. Notice he could have chosen to be in a great mood. They were celebrating a momentous moment in the life of the kingdom. And he was the king. And it was his victory. And David worked for him. And David was loyal to him. And when people who are loyal to you are on your team and they succeed and you lead the team, you ought to be thrilled. But he's not thrilled. Instead, there's resentment, and it ripped into him, and it ripened into, into hate and animosity. And if you read the story from there, you know his foul mood goes into a murderous rage. And eventually, we meet him, and he's, he's in this conversation with his son, Jonathan. And he, and he admits to Jonathan, King Saul's son, that he's, he's going to have David killed. And Jonathan and David are best friends, and Jonathan, Jonathan confronts him. The Bible says that David picked up a spear and hurled it right at the head of his son. And the text says, this is 1 Samuel 20, in case, in case you think we make this stuff up, these are real stories in the Bible. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 20, verse 34, Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Listen, you know, the, the Bible is not primarily a book of moral object lessons. There are good moral stories. There are terrible moral stories in the Bible. The Bible is a book about God and God revealing himself to us. But I think we would read this and we would probably say the anger that Jonathan felt about his father's plan to have David murdered was probably a good and noble kind of anger, a righteous anger. And Saul was counting on his son to be afraid and to back down. Because fear is this high-energy negative emotion that causes you to flee from a problem to run away. But instead, what he gets is anger, which can be a high-energy emotion that inclines you to approach a problem head-on. That's what Jonathan does. That's probably another sermon there. But anyway, it's a good thing he gets angry and not afraid. He confronts his father, Saul, and David's life is spared because of it. And maybe you're wondering, does that mean it's okay to to harbor this kind of anger, and I guess the answer is, well, if your father is hatching a plot to kill one of your friends and hurls a spear at your head, then yeah, it's okay to be angry. But a lack of anger 
when it's called for, can be just as serious as the presence of anger when it's not called for. It's amazing, though, that that Jonathan, even though he was fiercely anger, angry with his father in this moment, is at his side at the very end, and the two of them, the two of them are killed. What's more amazing is that after Saul and Jonathan are dead, David, who's now king, seeks, searches through the whole kingdom for any descendants of Saul. Whenever you hear that, you're thinking, well, that's so he can stomp them out, right? No rivals to the throne. You don't want any living descendants of your great adversaries because they have a claim to the throne. No, he seeks out any descendants so that he can bless them and celebrate them. And he finds one, a grandson, a crippled little boy named Mephibosheth, grandson to King Saul. And he takes him in, and and four times in this little story it says, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table just like one of the king's own sons. Who does this? What kind of mood must David have been in that fostered those kind of actions? It wasn't irritability. It wasn't rivalry or envy or fear. It's the kind of emotion that leads David to write in the most famous of all of his psalms, the one that starts, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. You know the one, Psalm 23. Leads him as he goes on to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And we're going to enjoy the feast together. Looking forward to feasting at Belly Busters this afternoon. (laughs) Al's not my enemy, but uh, boy, I just, I can't wait. Love is patient. Love is kind. It endures all kinds of things. It's long-suffering, keeps no record of wrongs. It's not irritable. But you know, it's a whole lot easier to talk about love than it is to actually do it. That's because there is one other difficult, courageous step that love takes, the irritation Never will. Love will do something that resentment and bitterness and holding a grudge refuses to do. And that involves a metaphor. And it's kind of parable that, that floats around where it gets used most actually is in recovery groups. AA and GA and groups like that. And one version of it goes like this. There's, there's a group of addicts and they're on a boat called recovery. And they're sailing their way to sobriety, to freedom, to, to moral sanity. There's this woman named Mary. She gets down to the dock and she sees that the boat has just left and feels like she's missed it. But everybody in the boat says, come on, jump in, swim to the boat. You're not too late. We'll pull you in. And so she does. She dives into the water. But she can't swim. She's having trouble. She's going down. And she's kicking and screaming. And it becomes apparent that the reason that she's sinking is because she's holding on to this enormous rock. And I'm serious. This is, oh. It's an enormous rock. And everybody in the boat says, Mary, drop the rock. Drop the rock. And she looks down and she and she's holding on to it. And all of this bitterness that she's been carrying, all this animosity, all this hatred, all the wrongs, all the injustice that have been laid upon her through her life, she just cannot let it go. And it's dragging her to the bottom. The rock is her pride. It's her resentment. It's, 
It's the circle of thoughts that have her spiraling down. And then in a moment of God-given sanity, it occurs to her, why am I clinging so hard to this thing that makes me so miserable, that has cost me my marriage, my career, my past, and will cost me my future? It has embittered my spirit. It has poisoned my soul. It has ruined me. And she lets it go. She floats to the surface where a group of eager hands are there to pull her out and onto the boat. And everybody cheers. And as they're cheering, they see another guy in the dock who jumps in and starts sinking to the bottom just like Mary had. And she joins them in crying, drop the rock, drop the rock. <laughs> Love isn't irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. And it drops the rock. There is, in the gift of forgiveness, a liberating power that can be found nowhere else. And as hard as it is to offer to others, it is just as hard to receive it ourselves. The ultimate place to put your rock is at the cross. And if you've never done that, whatever resentment or hostility or bitterness Whatever irritability you carry, you will carry with you until you can leave it there. You know, the rock is one of the most prevalent images in Scripture. In an era long before explosives or or, or electrical power, this was the symbol also of strength. God is my rock and my refuge. He is the foundation of my life. The wise man built his house upon the rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. And so to the rock we go to let go of whatever weight has us sinking. Let me encourage you, whatever you've brought with you today that you need to leave behind, leave it here. To Christ, the solid rock, I cling. Make today the day that the only rock that you hold tightly to in your life is the one that brings freedom and life. God bless you this week.